0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org.
1: ...or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark say in the light, and what you hear whispered proclaim on the housetops... And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Father, that's you. You are the one who can, if you choose, in a moment, destroy body and soul in hell. The only reason that we breathe now is because you have not chosen to do that. Thank you. You have made us, Lord, people in your image. And so we care about life, we value life. That's a good thing, you've made us like that. We have to acknowledge also, Lord, that we value life here on earth perhaps too much and fear those who can take it fear those who can threaten it fear those who can diminish our enjoyment of it even fear those who can just make it slightly uncomfortable for a moment we are not to fear them we are to fear you and you alone you only God give us grace that that might be the case it would fear you and not man, and so proclaim from the rooftops what you have told us of yourself. Lord, I pray, move us a little bit towards that today. Use your word here. Do something almost miraculous. Change people. Pry us away from gripping our lives so tightly that we will not risk anything. Pry us away from that, Lord. Fasten our fear on You alone. Move us, make us different. It's my hope and my prayer this morning, Lord. Give grace to us towards that end, that Christ may be exalted, that we may become more of what You want us to be. Thank You, Lord. Amen. Last week, we listened in while Jesus prayed for his own believers, you, if you're a genuine Christian. He went to the Father on our behalf, and if you were tracking, then you saw that in a multitude of ways, the amazing, sovereign, saving, preserving, changing, unifying grace of God has been poured out upon you. Grace running out on you like a river. You stand in grace. That's how God deals with you. You breathe grace. The undeserved favor of God covers you. And it is not only for you. It is for you. But not only for you. God means to affect far more lives than just your own. He has a far grander scope. He blesses you so as to bless others, those out there. He has graced his church so that the nations can be glad and sing for salvation joy. His scope reaches beyond your heart to the ends of the earth. He has a mission, and he wants you to get involved with it. Join him in seeking and saving those whom he is seeking and saving. So it was last week. You heard that. And I pray that a miracle happened and that you were just a little bit changed so as to embrace that mission just a little bit more, to be different in here and so different out there. It's my hope and my prayer, and to aid in that change this morning, my hope and my prayer again is that another seemingly impossible change would happen, that Christ would invade your heart in another new way, conquer a little bit more of you in here, so as to further that change from last week, so as to propel you more out into the world. It's my hope. And it is especially important because of how I look and see Peter responded to listening to John chapter 17 prayed. Last week's passage. Peter was right there for the whole thing. Heard it from the lips of Jesus himself. Lord, Father, set them aside. Send them out like you have sent me out. Lord, Father, change them so that they can be effective ambassadors and witnesses for you here. He heard all of that, probably even said amen at the end. And then, four or five hours later, four or five hours later, standing around a campfire with the world, warming himself there, repeatedly denying that he even knows who Jesus is. If you're going to avoid that, and embrace this mission for a lifetime and not shrink back. Something else has to happen in your heart. Lots of things have to happen. One thing in particular we're going to talk about this morning, and my hope is that Christ would invade you and conquer another little piece of you inside there, make you different. So we're going to get at this morning in John chapter 18. Let me read the passage. It's a long passage, verses 1 to 27. I'm going to read the whole thing, reading from the English Standard Version. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing there with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching, and Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Honest then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. The passage begins with Jesus and his disciples going out. Back at the end of chapter 14, they had begun to leave, but evidently Jesus had a few more things to say, and so he kept talking, but now he's really done. They leave, they leave out of the city, they go out of the room, out of the city, and they pass over the Kidron Valley, which is a little valley just to the east of the city, and they come up the other side of the Mount of Olives. So they're still very close to the city, but they're on top of this little hill here, and evidently there's an enclosed garden up there, the owner of which regularly let Jesus and his disciples use, a place where Judas had frequently been, knew exactly where they would go. He could expect to find them there. The last we've seen, Judas, was back in chapter 13, after Jesus identified him as the betrayer, and then he left, and the disciples didn't get it at all. So they're not expecting what's about to happen. Judas arrives, leading a a detachment of Roman soldiers and Jewish temple police. You've got to see the scene here. They're on top of a little hill in a walled garden. There are probably some olive trees there, but it's nighttime, and they've got a view here of the valley, and out of the city, through the valley, up the hill, comes perhaps as many as a couple hundred soldiers carrying torches and lanterns and swords, walking in the night. They're not sneaking up on anybody. Coming right up the hill. Jesus could have set a lookout, could have avoided the place to, to start with, could have left as soon as he saw them coming. Doesn't do any of that, though. He goes directly to where Judas would expect him and stays there the whole time. Because, as verse 4 says, he knows exactly what's going on. This is all on purpose. So when he comes forward to ask them the question, "Whom are you seeking?" He's not really looking for information. He knows. He says, "Though whom are you seeking?" And Judas standing right there with them. Now as he's officially changed sides, he's opposing Jesus. He and the others answer, "Jesus of Nazareth." To which Jesus replies, literally, "I am." On the one hand, that's a totally normal way of answering that question. Who are you looking for? Jesus? Oh, that's me. Totally normal way of looking at that. But as we've seen repeatedly, John often is talking on two different levels, and here we've got the the normal physical level. But up here again and again and again in this book, that phrase, I am, Jesus is taken upon himself. It is the phrase that translates the name of God in the Old Testament. In your Bibles, it's written capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. We've seen this before. It's the name of God. Not just the title, it's His personal name. To say it was blasphemous. And again and again and again, Jesus says that. Takes it on Himself here again, right now. I am. I am the one. Spoke to Moses and said, bring my people out. I am the one and only God in the book of Isaiah. Who are you looking for? I am. How do they respond to that when they hear it? Well, They fall down. We're supposed to see that I am. It's repeated three times in this story. Three times he says that. He's emphasizing something there and the response to it. The soldiers, they they fall down. They they assume the appropriate position for a human in, in the presence of God. Away and down. Now why? They don't actually believe that he is the I am. They're going to arrest him in a moment. They don't really believe that. So we don't know what exactly is going on there. But again, there's this on the physical level, they do this. They, they don't believe anything else, but on the spiritual level, John is trying to point out something to us. This is how people should respond in the presence of the I am. This should be our response to him. Who is he? God. Fall down before him. And ironically, they do. For a moment, then they dust themselves off and get back up and and arrest him. You're looking for me. Let all these ones go. As the good shepherd that he is, Jesus steps in between the danger, protects his sheep, fulfilling his own word, so that none of them are lost. Peter, though, thinks he has a better idea, jumps up and tries to remedy the situation by drawing a sword to take on these couple hundred Romans. And in how this incident is recorded, you see a little bit of John's emphasis here. This, in, this incident is recorded so as to emphasize what Jesus says in response to Peter, not what Peter did. It doesn't even cover how Jesus healed his ear. We read that in other Gospels. It's emphasizing Jesus' statement I must drink the cup. Peter, that's not the way. I'm going to the cross. I am the I am, and I am the suffering servant. I am going to the cross. I have to. That's why I've come to drink this cup. Cup of the wrath of the fury of God. That's why I've come, Peter. Put away your sword. He does, and they arrest him, Romans and Jews together, the whole world, Jew and Gentile, aligned against Christ, and they take him off on us. Now at this point, From here on, there are just a bunch of details that one could look at. How is it that there are two people called high priests? There's an answer for that. What would be the exact legal procedures of the day, and why were so many of them broken? There are answers for that. Lots of questions. Who's the other disciple? Probably John. How did that work at the gate? How did he get in? We could look into all those things, but they're not really that important for our purpose this morning. For our purpose this morning, the basics are the Jewish authorities have for a long time had the end in mind, Jesus is going to die. The only question is, how do we get there? How do we work towards our preconceived end here? Now they have a chance. So they're just working it out. They're going to take him to Annas and hope that Jesus will implicate his guilt in some way, that he'll somehow condemn himself by explaining something about his teaching. This is before the official trial. This is like a, it's illegal, frankly, but it's a, a little pre-interview to see if he'll present some evidence. And Jesus' response to him is remarkably bold. Essentially, he says, Put me on trial. You ask me what I talk about? Everybody in the city knows what I talk about. Everybody. Thousands. What you're supposed to do is put me on trial and call witnesses. Ask them. They know. You're not supposed to question me. See if I'll incriminate myself. Pull out your witnesses. Put me on trial. And for boldness, I guess, an officer slaps him and he again confronts the wrong. And it, Hey, if I did something wrong, point that out. But why do you hit me? That's wrong. That's against the law. Jesus is not cowering here. You, gotta, you can read this story here and you can see the emphasis of John. John presents Jesus here as bold and even in charge of the whole situation. Think of what he left out. He left out Jesus silent like a lamb. He left out the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane where he weeps, praying in agony. It's not that he's contradicting the other Gospels. He's emphasizing something. He's emphasizing the control of the I Am. He reigns over this. He's boldly proclaiming truth, confronting error, in charge of the whole thing. And like a skillful storyteller, John has woven into it Peter, doing the exact opposite. Notice how we go, Peter, Jesus, Peter, Jesus, back and forth. Here's Jesus, standing on trial for his life, basically. Bold. And Peter's out in the courtyard, quiet. Warming himself there at the fire, with the world. Silenced by a slave girl. Even his comment, I am not twice, stands in the story in contrast to the threefold I am. Jesus and Peter, opposites. Third time, no, I'm not him. I don't even know what you're talking about. And the rooster crows, just like Jesus said it would. That's the end of the text. As I said this morning, My concern here in this passage, and really I believe it's God's concern in this passage as well, is not that you just learn a little bit more information about how all the arrest and trial went down. That's not the point. You'd be historically better informed. This passage is not here for that. God has a mission for you. Just like he had a mission for Peter. He has it for you. He wants you engaged in it. And to further enable you to To grasp that and to avoid Peter's pitfalls tells you something here in this section, in these verses. Something needs to move into you, to invade you, and take over another little piece inside of you. Let me state the main point for this morning here. I'll state it and then explain a little bit. Fear Christ. So as to sing of Christ to the world. This passage is here to encourage you to fear Christ, not everything else. Fear Christ so as to cause, there's, there's, a, there's a link. Fear Christ so as to be able to sing of Him to the world. A couple of parts of that, two parts. One, who's Christ? Start there, and then we're going to move to talk about the fear. Secondly, I'm going to hold off on defining fear until the second part. Two parts working towards fear, Christ, so as to proclaim him. Start with Jesus. First main point about Jesus I'd put this way. Consider, think about, ponder, evaluate, get your mind wrapped around, consider this, this, Sovereign, suffering, saving Christ. Consider this one, not some idea that you have. Consider this sovereign, I am, suffering, saving, sacrificed lamb, Christ. Get your mind wrapped around that. You could pick any number of different words there. Consider, behold, think about, look at. The point's all the same. It's here, just like so much of this book has been, to lift up Jesus and to show him to us like a jewel. Remember the multifaceted jewel we talked about a lot? It's here to lift up Christ and draw you to him and cause something to happen inside of you so that you say, There he is. I want him. I will look to him and think to him, serve him, surrender to him. Glorious. You are my Lord. What do you want from me? You have captured my attention. Christ again here doing that. So think about him. Consider him. He is the I am. God come in flesh, the Lord, holy and righteous, the creator and the sustainer and the judge of all that is. And all of the creation should and one day will fall down before him as though dead. That would happen right now if He did not veil His glory from us at this very moment. He knows all things, all things everywhere. And He knows it's going to happen because He has decreed that it will come to pass. Nothing happens out from underneath of His hand. He is the Sovereign One. Reigns over all things, over the affairs of men and women and governments and businesses and courts and neighborhoods, conversations, everything. Majestic is He. Mighty. In charge. Period. That's what it means to be the I Am. Nothing else. His decree reaches into all spheres of life. He determines times and places and seasons and ages. He sets up kings and Caesars and high priests, and He brings them down. This is Jesus, and He reigns. And in particular, He reigns over the events of the cross. This is no accident. It is His decision, in accordance with the Father, to die. It is his decision to embrace death. His decision to be captured. His decision to be tried. His decision to be executed as a criminal. He is no martyr killed for a cause. He is a volunteer sacrifice. Coming forward, knowing what will happen, saying, here I am. Do what you want. I have come to drink the cup, Peter. That's why I'm here There is a cup, you know. There is a cup of the wrath of the fury of God. Do not diminish it. Do not overlook it. Do not try to forget it or ignore it. It is real, it's true. A cup filled up by our rebellion day after day after day. A cup that infuriates God. We can talk about this concept. Jesus knows what it is like to be God and to be angry at the rebellion of his people. We can think about it. He knows because he is God. He knows what the wrath of God is like. The Niagara Falls of fury, ready to fall on people, held back for a moment and a moment and a moment, held back. He knows what it's like. And then he steps up, takes the cup, at your place and drains it for you. And you're forgiven if you're a Christian. He came to do that not as a martyr, as a substitute atonement turning aside from you the wrath and the fury of God so that you stand in grace. Consider Him the sovereign Suffering and saving Christ. Behold Him. Get your mind around what He does. The whole book of John is about this over and over and over again. We talk about it all the time. Why? Because you leak. You and I were humans. We're like a bucket with a hole in the bottom. We could pour in, pour in, pour in, and it runs right out. So God means to keep pouring it in and reminding us. Christ, this is who He is. Look to Him. Consider Him. May He invade your heart. Capture another little place. Plug a little hole in the bottom. It's who He is. And the soldiers bumped into Him accidentally. And once they got back up, carried on with business as usual. Don't be like that. Don't be like that. If you're not a Christian here this morning, please don't be like that. There's too much at stake. And if you are a Christian, there's still too much at stake. When you bump into Him, don't just turn around and keep on with your way. Caiaphas and and honest, they had their chance too, but they weren't looking for anything. They'd already made up their mind as to who this Jesus was. The only thing that they're looking for is more evidence to support their conclusion. Don't be like that. Don't come to Christ with your mind made up, just looking for further evidence to reject him. He's right here. Consider him. He is the sovereign. And He is a suffering Savior. You can be forgiven. That's the message of hope. That this passage, this book, this whole Bible holds out to you. There is a way that you can be forgiven. There is a way that you can be forgiven. Come to Christ. Most of us here, while we need to consider that for ourselves, already are believers, and this is the heart of the message that we must proclaim from the rooftops All throughout this valley, there is a way to be saved. One. But there is a way. That's good news. There are a million people in this valley that don't know Christ. They need to hear about Him. Why don't they from us? I know they do in some little ways, but by and large, we're weak in this. I like to drive along Wasatch Boulevard right up here because you can see the whole valley. And at night, it's best. I love the beautiful night with the lights. It's marvelous. But usually what I think about is how those lights represent people. They're lights in cars that people are driving. They're lights on streets, lighting the way for people to walk and see. They're lights in homes where people live and while I certainly don't know all the numbers, if you were to like, pair each light with say a thousand people, there would be a couple lights for the believers in the valley, and the thousands of other lights would be for the people who don't know Christ. It helps me with my perspective because I can sit here and talk to you and forget about them really easily. What about you? Do you proclaim this message Are you concerned to proclaim this message more and more effectively? We need to get better at this as a church. This is a huge part of why you're still breathing on the earth. Talked about this last week. He left us here for a reason. pours grace on us for the sake of others. We must embrace that mission. If you ask one or a group of us, why don't we? There'd be a lot of different answers. One big answer relates to one problem that appears in this passage. That's what we're going to turn to look at here next. If you ask the question, why don't you show your faith more? Why don't you proclaim Christ more, more effectively, more boldly, whatever? You ask that sort of a question, and one of the common answers, not the only answer, but one of the common answers you'll get from honest people is because I'm afraid. It might be afraid because I don't know everything. It might be afraid because I, I don't know exactly what to say next. Could be a bunch of reasons, but fear is the root of them. That's a significant reason. That's a significant problem that holds us back, and that's what's going on with Peter here, is it not? So here's the second point we need to address here this morning. In regards to fear, this, this passage implies for us this point being controlled by fear in evangelism being controlled by fear in evangelism comes from an inadequate fear of Christ say that again because it's really long being controlled by fear in evangelism comes from an inadequate fear of Christ comes from not correctly beholding him Considering him, not correctly getting who he is, and therefore our hearts do not fear him and they turn and fear something else and then are silenced. Here's what I mean by fear the Bible talks about fearing God, fearing the Lord, fearing Christ. It does not mean cringing, it does does not mean terror. It's different. Now, in some settings, when talking about judgment, it it carries that connotation, but generally when it encourages us to fear the Lord, it does not mean cringe in terror in presence of Him. It means rather something like this. Here's how I would put it. Have a deep, controlling, sober respect for Him. A deep, controlling, sober respect. You could define it in a number of ways. That one works for me. And I think very frequently of electricity in this regard. When I'm doing something like working in a structure or outside with a, a yard implement or something, there's electricity involved, I pay attention to it. Because you don't get a second chance. I was recently with a friend of mine. And I was walking through his yard, and on the concrete there was a power cord, like an extension cord, an orange extension cord, stretched across the concrete in a puddle of water that we had to walk through, and I stopped in front of the puddle as he walked right through it. I thought and said, what's that? Because that doesn't look good to me. And he said, oh, don't worry, there aren't any, there aren't any uh, nicks or any uh, cuts in the, in the wire. I thought, maybe not yesterday, <laughs> but this is a high traffic area on concrete with gravel and whatnot. And if I step in that, there's no second chance. I see that and it controls what I'm thinking about. So I didn't step in the puddle. I mean, he did, he didn't die, it was fine. But who knows about tomorrow or the next day or the next day? Eventually, something might happen and you won't know until it's too late. I fear that extension cord in that puddle. I'm not shrinking in terror, but I just walked around. I don't mess around with those things. It controls what I'm thinking about and therefore what I do. I have a sober respect for electricity. Fear Christ. Fear Christ. Not fearing Him. Inadequately fearing Him. Leads to being controlled by fear in evangelism. That's the life issue that jumps out at me from this passage. I'm reading along through one... Verses one to eleven, I see Jesus is the I am, He's sovereign, He's He's the suffering servant, He's the good shepherd. He's gonna drink the cup of the wrath of God. Yeah, I got that. You know, so did Peter. Peter got that. He was standing right there, heard it all. Heard the whole previous discourse. We could even quote Peter from chapter six. We believe and have come to know, Lord, that you are the Christ, the anointed one of God. Peter's got it all down. Right there with you, Peter. We also know a lot of doctrine here in this church. A lot of us know a lot of doctrine here in this church. The problem is that not only are we right there with Peter knowing all the doctrine, we're also right there with Peter standing at the charcoal fire, silenced by the world. Peter says, you are the Christ. We're with you, Peter. Jesus who? I don't even know who you're talking about. What's going on there with Peter? What's the deal? Well, what happens is that what Peter knows in his head is not the driving passion in his life. It's not controlling him. Or to use this word, he's not fearing correctly, adequately. He knows some stuff, but it's not gripping him in here. It's not controlling what he thinks about, what he looks at, what he believes, what he does. It's not going to change until after the cross. So we can cut Peter a little bit of slack here. He lives in a certain place right now, before the cross, before the coming of the Spirit of Pentecost, where he doesn't have the equipment. He doesn't have the Spirit living in him to make these things clear. So we can cut him a little bit of slack. However, we don't have those limitations. We live the other side of the cross, the other side of Pentecost. We have had our eyes open. We understand what all these terms mean that that Peter hears. You're the I am. Yeah, I got that. No, he doesn't. You do. You do. Consider that. You know him. You know what he means when he says those things. You know what he means when he talks about drinking the cup. You understand that. You don't have to stand with Peter around the fire, silenced in fear. You can stand with Peter after Pentecost in Acts 4. Jot that down and read the story later. But Peter and John, the writer of this book, and the same Peter in Acts 4 are being interrogated by the very same Annas and Caiaphas and company. Remarkable, the similarities. And Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, the text makes a point, Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, preaches the gospel to Annas and Caiaphas. They don't like that. Eventually they say, Don't do that anymore. And Peter and John say, You guys judge if we should obey you or we should obey God. But we cannot help but talk about this stuff. Do you hear the change in fear there? Here in our chapter, what's Peter afraid of? Slave girls who can do nothing to him. In Acts 4, who's he, who's he afraid of? God, not the high priest. He even says to him, you determine who I should fear, but I know the answer to that one, and so do you. I should obey God, not you. I fear him, not you. What happened in there? Full of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit has been poured out at Pentecost on you. You. To change you? To give you assurance of salvation? Sure, yes. And especially, especially to open your eyes so that you can accurately consider Christ, so that you can behold him, have your mind filled up with him. Peter did not change by sucking it up and being brave. He did not change when a preacher guilt tripped him into sharing his faith. He changed when the Spirit moved in and took control and showed him Christ. I cannot help but talk about what I have seen and heard because I see it in living color. Can't help it. That can, that must happen in us individually and collectively. It must. And if it does, we will be the same as them. Not exactly the same, not preaching to the same people in the same ways at the same time. But if the Spirit takes control of your life, what will happen is that you will fear God more and you will fear men less. That will happen. If it's not happening, run it backwards and say, Spirit, take control of me. Teach me, show me, open my eyes. Let me try to make this practical here. You need to learn to ask yourself. When you're in a situation talking to somebody, you need to learn to ask yourself, am I being silent about Christ right now out of fear? There are a bunch of reasons to be silent. Many of them legitimate. So you've got to ask yourself, self-be-honest with yourself, are you being quiet right now out of fear or is it out of wisdom? Which one is it? It's going to be tricky to evaluate that. You might lean towards the fear one because you're going to want to deceive yourself. So lean towards the fear one. And when you say, I am being quiet from fear, say, Spirit, take control of me. Show me who Christ is. Declare Him to me. Remind me. Preach to yourself. He is the I am, sovereign over everything, over this situation too, over this conversation too. What can happen to me apart from his hand? Nothing. What threat do I stand under? Well, maybe they could harm my body. That's probably not even going to happen in America. But maybe it might. Don't fear the ones who can only kill the body. Fear the one who can kill the body and the soul in hell. But doesn't because he poured it out on Christ for you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Preach that to yourself. Remind yourself of Him, the sovereign and suffering Christ. Go to God like that. When you're in conversations, and then, right after you pray that, right after you remind yourself of it, take a step and initiate with a comment. Whatever the situation requires. A question, maybe. You really think that, or... What do you think about Christ. You have a religious background? A thousand different entrees, entry points. Take the initiative. This has to happen. It has to happen in us. We individually need to strive for an adequate, a thriving, a robust, a huge vision of Christ. The bigger the vision that you have of Christ, think of Him like a magnet. The bigger the magnet is, the stronger the pull. Think of it like an electromagnet with a wire wrapped around it, if I've got my science right here. Great big magnet with a great big wire. Flip on the switch. Say, Spirit, turn the power on. This this thing will attract me and hold me here to it so that Christ is the one who controls my thinking and my looking, and I fear Him and not all this other stuff. So that my heart seeks after Him day in, day out not people and the things that they can give me or the things they can take from me. Fear in evangelism, being controlled by fear in evangelism, is rooted in not adequately fearing Christ. Your heart's going to fear one thing or the other. People or God. Repent if you need to. Ask the Spirit. Fill your heart with Christ if you need to. Pray with me that this would change our church individually, one at a time, and then collectively as a whole. We have a mission. And a large reason that we shrink back from that mission is fear. But there is a remedy to that. The fear of Christ is the remedy to the fear of people. Seek Christ.